We're in another four. We're in Ephesians chapter four. Sticking with our even numbers, if you will. Uh, we covered verses one through six a few weeks ago. If you uh, don't have a Bible and need a Bible, raise your hand. We can put one in your hand. Make sure that you, uh, we do have a couple that need one. So they should already be marked for Ephesians 4. We're going to pick it up with verse 7. And uh, to start off, with, I'll just read verses 7 through 10, and then we'll go through 11 through 16 as we go further along. But uh, if your Bibles are open, Ephesians 4, starting with verse 7. But to each one... Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who ascended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Jesus, we just ask for the wisdom, the instruction of your spirit, open our minds and our hearts that we would hear from you and you alone, and that we would be strengthened. And Lord, we'd leave here with your words hidden in our heart, Lord, that we'd walk in it. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, when Christ examines the church, uh, some of you have probably read, hopefully if you haven't, you, you get to reading it. Uh, Revelations chapter 2 and 3. When Christ examines the churches there, seven churches of Asia, and that was uh, right near the end of the apostolic age, um, Jesus, when he examines the church, he's looking for adherence to his word. Would you agree? He's looking for churches that, that follow his word, that are walking his word. You can see he has a close examination. Um, he's looking at the presence of love. You know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians, if we have not love... Prophets is nothing, right? So a church that actually is doing big things, but there's no love there, that would be a major problem. He's looking for that. He's looking for the work of the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is moving in that place. He's looking at the priorities of the church. What is the priorities of an individual fellowship anywhere in the world? What are the motives of that church? Um, whether the church is carrying out the will of God or carrying out their own will. Remember, uh, if you look in Revelation 3, when he speaks to the church of Sardis, he said, you have a name that you are alive. In other words, they were doing really, really big ministry stuff. And he said, but you're dead, but you're a corpse. So, but no one would have thought that. They're like, well, no, that's the most lively place on earth. I mean, lights are flashing, things are happening, miracles are taking place, all of that stuff. But Jesus looks deep in the heart of a church. Um, now, none of us really enjoy being examined, do we? Does anyone enjoy the checkup, the annual physical? Mm, no. I've got one coming up every, every year. If there was a way around it, I would. But uh, it's the only way to find out where your baselines are. And uh, you don't really even like the annual review process at your, at your work, do you? You love hearing, you know, you do this really well, but and no one really likes to hear that. Uh, but the Lord is always looking at us, and thankfully, God is so much more gentle than humans are with each other. He, he deals gracefully with us. He looks at a church, and he is going to correct, but it's always truly for our benefit. There's no political gamesmanship, right? He doesn't miss anything either. He's not like a doctor that doesn't really know all the stuff he's talking about. Sorry, doctors, but, you know, some, sometimes there's stuff there. Like, I just read a journal. This is completely opposite of what you just said, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, here, as we know that Jesus examines the church and we know that he looks at each church, here Paul lays out the blueprint of God's design for the church. Because if we know that Jesus is going to examine the church, we want to know what he's already told the church. Amen? Because if, if we do what he's told us and we continue to come back to that and stay in there and that place that he said, then we're going to be okay, we're not going to be perfect, but he's going to look and say, well done, good and faithful church. And Paul lays out the blueprint of God's design for his church, which of course inc in includes individual churches just like ours, but also the larger context of all churches that are in the body of Christ. So, you know, it's not just Calvary Chapel or Richmond. We've got our Baptist brothers and sisters and Methodists and Presbyterian and, and many different denominations, and, you know, some are following the Lord and some are not. Within, any, within all the spectrum. But 
Paul is saying here to the Ephesians and also to us uh, in, in all the verses that we'll read, when we, ver- when, we verse, uh, when, when we get to verses 10 through 16, this will come a little more into focus, but Paul is speaking here to the Ephesians and to us what Christ has set forth for the church, why it's designed in such a way. You know, we're not to design the church. We're to follow God's design for the church. Amen? We're, God's not looking for a new, better way of doing it. God's not lo- looking for some, wow, I never thought we could actually do ministry like this. We're not to be original. We're to follow the book of Acts. We're to follow what the apostles have written. We're to, now, we'll get into what, there's things, there's creativity, there's gifts, there's talents. We'll look at some of those things. But the blueprint for the church, how it's designed, is designed by the Lord. How it's to operate is within the spirit-given design found in the scriptures. And that will produce health. It'll produce stability. It'll produce consistent growth within the body of Christ. Now, we looked two weeks ago at the opening verses in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I don't have time to reread them, but in verses 1 through 6, I I shared a message called Unity Through Humility. And you may remember that if you weren't here, you can uh, check it out on the YouTube channel. Uh, But marks of a healthy church, and this is kind of a part two of that. And by way of a, a very brief review, Uh, as these next 10 verses, they're going to build on uh, the verses of the first six. Let me remind you that Paul wrote this from prison. Remember that? We talked about that a few weeks ago. He wrote this from prison as a prisoner of the Lord. And our circumstances, they don't change the mission that Christ has given to us individually or for the church. Do you agree with that? Our circumstances don't change the mission. Just like in your home, if you don't feel good, you still have to care for those in the home. Amen? There's still, that things have to go forward. You, uh, we don't look at the circumstance and say, well, our circumstance is such and so that uh, we don't have to follow God's design anymore. No, we're here to rejoice in the Lord, to move forward in the Lord, knowing that Christ is faithful. As far as unity, it's essential. We looked at it, unity through humility. That's essential, and it's demonstrated where is humility first demonstrated? Well, in Jesus, right? And we see the unity of God in the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Um, we see the humility of Jesus demonstrated by him humbling himself to death. And even that was in unity because it was the Father's desire. And the Holy Spirit led him to Jerusalem. And so we see the unity of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. We also see the humility of Jesus. And God wants the church to be unified but very humble. That was in verses 1 through 6 that we looked at. And so as the church endeavors to answer the fulfilling and call of, of Christ and to stay committed to him, God wants us to do that in humility in a spirit of forgiveness, love covers a multitude of sins, to stay centered on the unity of what? Our oneness and faith. That's verses 4, 5, and 6. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Those are called creeds, if you've ever heard that term. Uh, a creed that we have oneness and these things that come down from the Father in heaven. And that we would stay centered on the oneness because the world likes to divide people, doesn't it? Where God and the Spirit of God and the truth of God and the love of God and the work of God brings a uniting of people. And Jesus, of course, is the chief cornerstone of the whole building. That he's building up this church that is to look like one with all of his different puzzle pieces. Christ is the chief cornerstone. Now, verses 7 6 through 16 that we'll be looking at this morning, they take us from the foundation to function, right? You can, have a, you can have a foundation of a house, but until you put up the stud walls and you put in the plumbing and you turn the power on, it's not a functioning home at that point, right? Not many people want to sleep outside with no roof, but you put the whole house together, and even one of the houses together, it's still not functioning until the water's now flowing through the pipes and the electricity's turned on. And so God lays the foundation of the church, but not just the foundation. He gives us the functioning process of the church, how a church is supposed to function, how a family's supposed to function, how a marriage is supposed to function. Sometimes people are asking themselves, how does this thing function, right? 
And, you know, when, you, when you're looking at that from, uh, maybe it's in your car, you have to pull open the glove compartment and look in the owner's manual and say, what does it say about this blinking light? You ever done that? It's pretty helpful. And Lord will show us in the church that maybe some blinking lights, and we have to go back to the owner's manual. What does the Lord say to how we are to function? The house that you live in, it's also meant to be livable. I know that the magazines show it as it's a museum, but that's really not how living goes, right? A house is supposed to be a place to live, to welcome people. By the way, when you welcome people, they'll bring dirt on your carpet. When you welcome people, they'll eat more food than you expected them to eat. They won't even like some of the things you make sometimes, and you still have to be hospitable and say, well, how about this bowl of Cheerios instead, right? <laughs> I love kids. Kids, when they come, they tell you exactly what they're, hey, would you like, no, I don't really like that. <laughs> uh, my wife's worked hard to prepare it. It looks great. Yeah, I don't really like, they had a hot dog, you know, so, you know. But God will bring us to the same taste buds, if you will, in the body of Christ for the spiritual thing. We'll have some diversity among a whole wide range of areas, but among the spiritual things, God will give us a similar taste bud, a similar desire, not just similar, a sameness. If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in the Word this morning, Unity in Serving, Marks of a Healthy Church, Part 2, Unity in serving. Yes, God will even give us a taste for serving, a desire to serve, because that's not a, that's not a natural desire of most people. I mean, some people just kind of have a, a giver's, you know, they're just born that way. They're, you ever seen the little kids that just helping all the other kids? But most kids are the one grabbing the toy out of someone's hand. They're not serving. Most of us serve ourselves, but not naturally serve other people. And so God has to give by His Spirit into each and every one of us, this desire to serve one another, to love one another, to meet each other's needs. And so we'll be looking at that uh, in the text this morning. Now, starting in verse 7 here, uh, we read verses 7 through 10. Uh, I've titled this, The Giving of Grace, these first few verses, if you're taking notes, The Giving of Grace. Now, he says, but to each one, verse 7, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. This grace that Paul is speaking of here is not the grace of salvation, not explicitly and specifically. Now, of course, the grace of salvation is the larger umbrella that covers all grace, but there are manifestations of God's grace that are actually different pouring out from God, if you will. Although Christ, of course, the source of saving grace, uh, the grace that Paul mentions, uh, which that, men that grace is mentioned back in verse 8 of chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, right? Not of yourself is the gift of God. Uh, Christ is the source of all grace. But the grace here is the gifting of grace through the Holy Spirit to effectively and faithfully serve. In other words, gird your waist and start washing feet in the body of Christ. God has to give us grace to do that. And those of you that don't like feet, you would understand that, right? You would need a lot of grace to wash some feet. Well, spiritually speaking, all service will get your hands dirty, and you'll get your fingers stepped on, and you'll get your feelings stepped on, and you'll need a lot of grace to keep serving and not be bitter about it, not be broken about it, not be messed up about it. You'll get a manifestation of God's grace that'll just keep cleaning. How many times have you washed the same shirt in your life? Did you give it up because it was dirty once? No. You got that whirlpool open again, and back in it goes. And so, just like the machine keeps cleaning, grace kind of keeps giving, and God gives us a manifestation of His grace to serve and this grace is to fill our calling in serving because even as we serve, there's some common ways we serve, but there's also some individual ways that God will say, well, I want you to serve here. I want you to serve over here. I want you to use your gifts and talents over here. Now, we certainly cannot be saved apart from grace, and we can't truly, we can't truly trust the Lord and, the needs and, and see the needs of others without a measure of grace. So we, we need grace for salvation, but then we need also grace to see needs, 
to understand what God has seen. And that grace comes from the storehouse of God. He has more than enough grace to help every believer at any part of the world be a server, be a servant. His grace ensures that our service is pure because without God's grace, our service would not be real pure, would it? It would always have hidden motives. It would always have personal intentions. He purifies our motives. He gives us grace to persevere because otherwise we'd give up quickly. Right? We'd say, oh, I I did that. I already did that. I checked that box. Did that. Uh, I already served over there. Helped that need. I don't need to do that anymore. No, he says persevere. You've got to keep doing this. And he gives us grace that allows our service to spring forth from a place of joy, not just drudgery. Although there are times when the drudgery is there, and that's where perseverance comes in. So you'll have both. When it's drudgery, he gives us perseverance. When it's all joy, he gives us strength, or he gives us wider vision. But within this gift of grace to serve, uh, God gives us this grace to labor in his kingdom and in his church, and he gives a plurality of gifts for carrying out the will of God, a plurality of gifts, not just one specific gift, but different types. Notice that when Paul writes in verse 8, if you look in your Bibles in verse 8, here he quotes from Psalm 68, 18. In some of your Bibles, it may show italicized because uh, he's quoting from the Old Testament or the Tanakh here in uh, Psalm 68, 18, and he uses the plural tense of gifts, not gift singular. He gave gifts, plural, to men. Psalm 68, if you go back, and we don't have time to do it this morning, you go back and look at Psalm 68 in its context, the 68th chapter of Psalm was written to Israel, and it conveyed God's goodness and faithfulness to the nation-state of Israel, but it also conveyed God's glory to Israel. So if you read the 68th chapter and say, yeah, I want to go back and look at that, take a look. It's not written to the church, at least not when it was written. It was written to Israel And all of God's faithfulness, all of his glory revealed to Israel. But the parallel, the fact that Paul would actually re-quote Psalm 68 and apply it to the church, the parallel here is that the glory of God that was shown to Israel is now the glory of who? Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, ascended on high. So Paul says whether they realize it or not, they actually got a messianic prophecy in the 68th Psalm because it says... When he ascended on high, he left captivity captive. Jesus conquered death, didn't he? He conquered sin. You and I were captive to sin and we were captive to death, but he captured sin and death. And he took it on high, and when he sat down on his throne, he sat down on high with sin and death under his feet, conquered forever for all eternity. And Paul says, when you're reading the 68th Psalm, you're reading about Jesus. He's the one that ascended back on high. So there was a foreshadow of this messianic prophecy fulfilled by Jesus in his death and resurrection. Now, in Psalm 68, it refers to where Paul says, and he gave, um, and gave gifts to men. The 68th Psalm doesn't say that. If you go back and read it, you'll see that it says in the 68th Psalm, it refers to God receiving gifts from men. What would that be like? Well, the children of Israel, they had to bring offerings to the Lord, Right? They really would bring a literal offering, not just a fictionary one, not a prayer. They have to bring animal sacrifices. They brought gifts. And if you look at the history of Scripture, this has happened in the form of not just the offerings and sacrifices, but remember even at the birth of Jesus, there's a little messianic foreshadow there too. The wise men brought gifts to God, didn't they? What was Jesus' name? Emmanuel, God with us. They brought gifts to God. So the 68th Psalm talks about bringing gifts to God, but here Paul's talking about God giving gifts to men. And the Spirit reveals here to Paul that through the Spirit of Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, he has given spiritual gifts. First, the gift of salvation, best gift we've ever received, right? Salvation, far and away best gift. But after salvation, God has also given spiritual gifts. Some of you have gifts that are you didn't have before you were saved. You, you didn't have uh, kind of that gift of helps, and now you do. Or you didn't have hospitality, and now you do. 
And these gifts are given for his glory, but also for us fulfilling the will of God. And with the finished work of Jesus, and in response to that work, his gift of salvation has caused us to live our lives first. We have given gifts to God. We gave our lives in repentance, didn't we? We didn't have anything else to give, did we? Did you have anything else to give God that would be of value to him? By the way, our soul is only valuable because he says it's valuable. But we gave ourselves to him. When I, when I got saved, when I walked an altar in 1995, I, I gave myself to the Lord. I didn't say, Here, here's my checkbook. I hope this will satisfy my debt. I had to give myself. You had to give yourself. We gave ourselves as a gift, but he gave us greater gifts back than we gave to him. Amen? He gave us salvation, but then he said, I'm going to make you a loving person now. You're going to actually like your family now. I didn't really care about my family before. So I, I, once a year, that's good enough. You know, see them at Christmas, maybe every five years, something like that. You know, all of a sudden, God changed. He gives us a gift of his spirit, gifts plural of his spirit. And from his throne, he's given these gifts to each and every one of his children. Now, Jesus said in John 16, 17, this is before he had even gone to the cross, before he had died, before he had raised himself from the dead. He said this. He said, nevertheless, speaking to the apostles, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I, de will de if I depart, I will send him to you. Do you believe that? Jesus said, I have to go back to the Father and I will go back to the Father. I'll sit at his right hand until he tells me to go back and receive the church and himself. But while I'm gone, I'm going to send you the third member of the triune God, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will not only purify and lead the church, but will give individual gifts to some people, to all people that are saved. But those that are saved, he'll give some gifts to some, and some get more spiritual gifts. I don't know why. And they will be more accountable for using those gifts. The more gifts you're given, you're going to have a greater accountability to use those spiritual gifts. But the Holy Spirit, God, Jesus says, hey, when I go, I'll send him. He'll help you. He'll reveal the word to you. He'll protect you, but he'll also bring these gifts. And so with the ascension of Jesus came, in fact, the sending of the helper. First, he baptized the church on the day of Pentecost. The church was baptized into Christ. And then uh, all believers received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but also then came the giving of spiritual gifts by the Spirit. Brother and sister, do you know the gifts God's given you? It's good that you have spiritual brothers and sisters that love you, and you can say, hey, do you see any specific gifts? Oftentimes, some people will see a gift in you that you don't see in yourself, and that's, that's good. Actually, that, that keeps you humble that you don't see all these gifts, that someone else can say, I really see this gift in you. And have others help confirm the giving of gifts. You can pray for gifts of the Spirit too, by the way. But the question is, if God gives you spiritual gifts, are you using them? Are you willing to use them? Are you going to serve and use those gifts? The baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is a different work than the church being baptized into the Holy Spirit, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a second work of salvation. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is given for the anointing of ministry power. Ministry power. Because you will need ministry power to actually serve. It's not a second work of salvation I mentioned. It's God empowering us first to be his witnesses, but also anointing our gifts with power and love, because power and love have to go hand in hand. You can't have all love and no power. You can't have all power and no love. God anoints it with the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8 speaks of this. Now, we'll come briefly back to gifts when we close in verse 16, but let's look at the next piece of the puzzle that Christ has given the church. We have the giving of grace, which are these, again, not the grace of salvation, but the grace to be gifted for service. And the second is the giving of leaders. Now, a lot of times, because bad leaders have so corrupted people's thought process sometimes, that this is, a, in many people's mind, I, I, I wish we didn't have any leaders. No, in the history of the world, there's been good leaders and bad leaders. Amen? And really good leaders actually have been used both in the 
you know, the, the non-Christian world, uh, there's been good leaders that they're not necessarily saved, but they still were uh, used in a positive way, men and women. And then certainly in the uh, work of the Lord, God has always raised up leaders to lead his people. Moses was raised up specifically, right, to, he was the one that says, let my people go. And Paul reminds and affirms, let's look at the next couple of verses in verse 11 and 12, uh, what Paul is reminding and affirming to the church, starting in verse 11. And he himself, who's that? Jesus. It should be capitalized in your Bible. He himself, this is Jesus Christ, the head of the church. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Notice what it doesn't, to entertain the people. Doesn't say that. To make sure everyone is happy as a lark. Doesn't say that. To make sure everyone is as comfortable as they possibly can be. Doesn't say that. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so Paul affirms for the church that in addition to the grace that's given and available to the believers to serve the Lord and use their gifts, God has also given leaders for what? To stir up the gifts. That's what Paul wrote to Timothy. Those are pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. Those are pastoral epistles. To stir up the use of the gift, to prioritize the use of the gifts. They have to be prioritized. Love is a greater gift, isn't it? And if the church starts drifting to some other thing and love falls way down the list, someone has to reprioritize. Hey, wait, time out here. Love is a greater gift here. My gift of creativity is better than your gift of creativity. Love is better than both your gifts. Amen? So to prioritize the use of the gift and to organize the functioning of the gifts, things are to be done orderly. It's not to be a free-for-all in the body of Christ, and nor was it uh, in the nation state of Israel, if you look back at the early leaders. And we're to use the gifts and we're to serve under the guidance of Scripture and the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's not based on, well, someone wrote a new book and it's even better than the book of Acts, right? It's a, it's a number one seller on the New York Times and everyone's buying it and we should do this. If it doesn't square with the Scriptures, I'm sorry, I don't care how many times it's been sold. God says, stick with my writings. Within the family of God and the church, and Christ ordained, God the Father has established that uh, grace and the gifting that comes with that grace is essential, but that leadership and humble governance is also essential in the body of Christ. I don't know why, but that's the way God made it. You know, God... I don't know, this world doesn't seem to think this is right, but you can look at so many societal ills. Do you know that God says a godly man and a godly woman coming together to be godly parents is essential for a home? Well, the world says, no, that's not important, and we see the manifestations and problems of that. So if God says that godly leadership is important, we either say amen to that or we say, I don't think so. We'll do it a different way. No, he established this. The scriptural term that's often used in the Bible is shepherds. A good shepherd, if you ever watched a good shepherd, is he out there like just, just beating down on the sheep? No. Leading them to green pastures. The 23rd Psalm, which we looked at on Father's Day, that's the picture of what shepherds should look like. Servants of the Lord. They're also the term is servants of the Lord is used. Men of God is used in the Bible as well. Men chosen to serve God by serving, by supporting, by leading the children of God. Now, Jesus is the good shepherd, of course. He is the model that anyone that's called should be looking to him to say, how do I want my attitudes and actions and, and how do I teach and preach? How, how would this most exemplify Christ? We look to Jesus. He's the leader of everyone. But understand that leadership within the church is not according to who has the most education. Well, Peter would have been disqualified. And yet, who preached the very first powerful message of the church? Peter did. Fisherman. Well, he, he had to be a Levite. Nope. He had to be this, had to be that. He had to have a lot of education. John the Baptist didn't serve in the temple. He served in the wilderness. Jesus said he was the greatest of the prophets. It's not according to who has the most education. It's not who has the most respect in the community. 
biggest bank account, the most votes. Not that either. None of these things, God doesn't look at any of that. All through the Bible, God created Adam. Adam didn't even say, hey, please create me. Right? He got created. God chose and handpicked Abraham. He's an Earl of the Chaldeans, minding his own business. God says, hey, you, Abram, by the way, I'm going to change your name. Go to the nation I'm going to show you. Where is that? You'll find out later. Same with Moses. Moses, he had finally made peace with his life, 80 years old. I'm finally okay. I've got my life here in Midian watching sheep. God says, take a look at this burning bush. You've got a new calling. I don't want to go. Send Aaron, right? Joshua, Gideon, Peter. How about David? Samuel didn't even think David was the right guy, right? Samuel's convinced, this got to be this brother, this brother, this brother, this brother. Samuel, I thought you were the spiritual one. Oh, God had handpicked David. Nathaniel, Jesus comes up, sees him sitting under a tree. Calls, you know, he called the apostles. They dropped their nets and followed. They, they weren't like, hey, we're going to go find a guy to follow. He came and handpicked each and every one. He handpicked all the apostles. Paul was on his way to kill Christians, and Jesus said, oh, by the way, Paul, you're now going to be apostle number 12. Really? I hate these guys. <laughs> I would like to kill all the 11 of them, but uh, no, no, you're going to be one of them. So God chooses who he chooses. It's always been that way. It always will be that way. I love what Jeremiah, God says to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 3.15, and I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. All through the history of time, God has chosen men that would really love the sheep and would feed them according to knowledge and understanding. Whose knowledge and understanding? God's. Turn real quick to Exodus 18. It's got to be real fast, but Exodus 18 Moses here, he gets some counsel from his father-in-law, Jethro. Before Jethro was considered a, a Tennessee kind of name uh, with uh, the Beverly Hillbillies, Jethro was well before that. But This Jethro was smarter than that Jethro, uh, yeah, if you ever watched the Beverly Hillbillies. Uh, concrete pond and all that stuff. But uh, So... Uh, God speaks through him to Moses, and he says um, in verse 19, listen now to my voice, Exodus chapter 18, verse 19, listen now to my voice, I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God, before the people, that you may bring the difficulties to God, and you shall teach them the statutes and laws, and show them in the way they must walk and work, and, and the work they must do. There's the service, by the way foreshadowing what we'd see in the New Testament under Paul. And the work they must do, not only would people learn, but they would apply it, application, and then carry it out in service. Verse 21, moreover, you shall select from all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. Place over them rulers of fifties and thousands, and rulers of hundreds and fifties and rulers of tens. Let them judge the people at all time. Well, we'll leave it there. You go back to Ephesians. We don't have time to stay there. But I just wanted you to see that, again, leadership from the very outset, God has always said, I want leaders. But notice they had to be men that love truth, that hate covetous, they're not in it for the money. They love the Lord. And if those things are active and present, then God says, then the people will flourish. It's the structure of the church. Um, if we look at uh, the structure of the church that Paul lays out in Ephesians, look over at chapter 2, verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 20. Same book of Ephesians. And having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. So we know God's desire for leadership is clear. It's been all through the scriptures. But he also has a structure in the foundation of it is the apostles and the prophets for the church, for the New Testament church, which actually builds off of what was already established way back with the leadership of Moses and David and various others that God had raised up. But Jesus, among all leaders, is the chief cornerstone and the chief cornerstone of the church leadership. And he personally called the 12 apostles, didn't he? 
If the foundation is apostles, did the apostles call themselves? No. They couldn't call themselves. Right? Paul would, would, would open many of his letters. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He would constantly reaffirm, I'm only an apostle because Jesus picked me. And not, I, he said, I wasn't picked because I'm better than you. For whatever reason, God picked me to be an apostle, and now I have to fulfill the calling, even if people don't like it. You know people wanted to stone Moses more than once? He was a great leader. Everyone thinks of Moses as a great leader, but his own people didn't think of him as a great leader. Most of them whined and complained about him. And he's like, God, if I found mercy in your sight, shoot me now. He didn't, that's, that, that's um, paraphrasing. He says, he says, please take my life. But God gave him a re kind of an energizing love for them and all that kind of stuff. But all of the prophets include Moses and Elijah. David and all these were the prophets. The foundation was built on the prophets and the apostles with Jesus being the chief cornerstone. So Paul says here, and he gave some to be apostles and some prophets. They were the laying of the foundation. He personally called the 12 apostles. Uh, Christ raises up prophets. As some, he gives giftings of teaching and pastoring and evangelists. We'll look at those in just a second. To the work hand in hand with the foundational work of the apostles and prophets. Now, if you think about some of those that um, would have had the gifting of prophet, look at Stephen or Apollos or Agabus, who actually prophesies over Paul. They reflected this role of prophets. And the New Testament writers, think about some of the writers that were not apostles. They could also be regarded as prophets, men like Jude, or James, or Luke. They were given Holy Spirit Scripture they wrote down. Uh, you don't get to write anything down and it become Bible. Amen? But he gives it to prophets. He, he gave these to the apostles. They were handpicked by the Spirit. The apostles, they also gave evidence. A lot of times people, you'll see people today, this is apostle so-and-so, this is apostle so-and-so, this is apostle so-and-so. Now, I understand the spirit in which that is used. It's not, there, is a, there is a biblical context that that can make sense. I get that. But the apostles, the strictest sense of the term, they were given supernatural power by Jesus, and they were eyewitnesses to his majesty. 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul writes this. He says, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with perseverance, signs, and wonders. I don't know about you, but most of these apostles I've seen, I have not seen them clean out the sick ward at the hospital. But the early apostles did some of these things. They, they, they were given some of the same miraculous power that Jesus had, but only for the establishment that the word would be penned and written. All the apostles were prophets, by the way. Every apostle was a prophet, but not all prophets were apostles. Again, the apostles, they were foundational, as were the prophets who wrote the scriptures. Old Testament prophets New Testament, Jesus said John the Baptist was the last of the pre-resurrection prophets. The, uh, under the new covenant, prophets like Agabus would have been under the new covenant, but John the Baptist being the last of the old covenant prophets. But there's no more apostles being added to the foundation. The foundation is the foundation for a reason. Amen? There's not any new apostles. There's not a 13th apostle coming up. There's no scripture. There was 12 specific apostles. If you say, well, I'm not sure if I understand that that's accurate. Read Revelation 21.14. Revelation 21.14, it says, I'll, I'll read it for you see, just so you know. Revelation 21.14, this is how you can know there's 12 of them, not a multitude. It says in Revelation 21.14, and the walls of the new city, this is the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The 12. Amen? I believe Paul's part of that 12, and I believe the other 11. I don't know where Matthias fits. Poor guy. He won by a straw picking. It wasn't the whole, maybe it wasn't the holiest moment for the apostles. I don't know. But uh, God seemed to trump their choice, and along comes Paul a couple chapters later. So, I don't know. I know Matthias is a great man. And in a wider context, he's an apostle because there actually is use in Scripture um, that in the early church, there were others that were considered 
apostles, but not of the twelve, but only in the establishment of the church. I know this might seem confusing. I don't have enough time to go into it. You can study it more. But that's found in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. But they were all people that had actually seen Jesus as well among the 500 that Paul mentions. They are mentioned. And it's kind of like this. The apostles are 12, and there may have been some that were considered in a wider context also apostles that saw Jesus, but not the 12 apostles. They could have been of the 500, for example. But they weren't the 12 the 12 apostles are kind of similar. Like when you say the patriarchs, you're saying Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But you can say there was other patriarchs that were contemporaries of them, but nobody considers someone from 1972 one of the patriarchs. That makes sense? The patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But you could say some other patriarchs could include like Joseph. He would be, Joseph would be kind of that second level, if you will, of a patriarch. Now, I could make the argument, um, even though there's an apostolic thread that runs through all of us in the sense that Paul writes in Romans 1.5, through him, we, the church, have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Why? Because apostle means one who is sent with a delegation. We've all been sent out with a delegation. Missionaries planting churches is an apostolic function, if you will, but that doesn't make them an apostle. That was given. That's why Paul's saying there were certain roles that were handpicked by Jesus, the apostles and the prophets. I could make an argument that there are some today still with a prophet calling. Um, talk to me in 10 years, and I'll tell you if my view has changed on this, but I believe that there's some that still could have a prophet calling, but I don't know any of them that still called themselves prophets. Take example like a Leonard Ravenhill. He preached like a prophet. A man standing in the wind against, you know, oncoming, raging, he would just say things that other people would be petrified to say. That's the way prophets were, right? They would stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, right? In the face of kings, in the face of, you know, all kinds of adversity, uh, I would say that men like Martin Luther and John Knox and Jonathan Edwards, they could be considered, in a sense, prophets because they stood against tyrants and entire nations in a way that was more prophet than it was pastor. Does that make sense? And we, we are the beneficiary today of their strong standing, and only the Holy Spirit could have given them the strength to go to the martyr's stake and things of that nature. So some of them certainly could have been called, even in those times, in the Middle Ages, and all the way up till now, there may be some that God has given a prophet calling, but none of them, by the way, if you look at them in history, none of them called themselves prophets. They all referred themselves either pastors or evangelists, even themselves. You won't find, they. I am prophet Martin Luther. They didn't say that. Now, people sometimes would say that I see a prophet anointing on them. That's one thing. But the title uh, that we see over the last 2,000 years of church history that, that Jesus uses in the 2,000 years of the church now is pastors and teachers. That is the title that, and evangelist, and evangelist as well. Because if you look at, um, you know, the, like a Billy Graham, is he a pastor? No, he's clearly an evangelist. Now, some pastors have an evangelist calling. I'd say Pastor Greg Laurie is a pastor, but also has a gifting of evangelism. Pastor Chuck Smith thought he did not have that gifting. It's why he sent, Pastor Chuck, uh, he sent Greg out, because he said, you have the gift of an evangelist. And we've seen that uh, down through history. Um, D.L. Moody was a man that could pastor a church, but his primary gifting was that of an evangelist. But over the past 2,000 years, we, we consistently see evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Uh, and what is the primary function here? Look at it, what it says. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. For 2,000 years, God has wanted shepherds to be there to disciple men, to help people use their gifting for sharing the gospel, for growing in grace, Everyone is called to dis disciple other people. Everyone's called to share, but that doesn't mean everyone's called to be an evangelist or a pastor or a teacher. And by the way, you can be a teacher and not a pastor. I think of someone, uh, take a look at Joel Rosenberg. Fantastic teacher, but he's not a pastor. But he's gifted as a teacher. 
Pastoring is a little different heart. You have to have a heart for shepherding. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't go to school for it. God has to give it to you. And so Joel has a tremendous gift of teaching. Lee Strobel, good teacher. But some of these, they're great authors, and they teach the body of Christ, but that doesn't mean they're shepherds. And it doesn't mean that Billy Graham, who's a great evangelist, is meant to be a pastor. So you see these different anointings. And maybe Ravenhill was a prophet. Maybe that's, but he was also an evangelist. That's, if you asked him what he was, he'd say an evangelist. But he sometimes preached with quite prophetic powers too. By the way, the teaching of Scripture is prophecy, according to Peter. Now notice the purpose, though, again. Equipment of the saints for the work of ministry, edifying the body of Christ, the work of ministry and perfecting. Um, uh, it says here, uh, equipping, by the way. Equipping, let me start with that first. Equipping uh, is to perfect. It means to f- complete or to furnish. And then it says ministry. Ministry is diokonai. Uh, diokonai. I have to say it slow. I get it right. Diokonai. That's a Greek word. It means service of, uh, or ministering, especially executing the commands of others. Ministry is us executing the commands of Jesus. Did you hear that? That's what it is. Ministry is us executing the commands of Jesus. If we think of children's ministry, he says, do not forbid these little children to come unto me. He also said, if you cause one of them to stumble, it would be better for you than a millstone tied around your neck and cast into the sea. Those are pretty strong ministry guidelines, aren't they? (laughs) Wouldn't you agree? Strong ministry guidelines. Hey, you can really build a ministry around understanding of that. So we follow his commands. That's what ministry is. Edifying, what does that mean? It means to build up or promoting growth. Not that the whole church would be happy and successful. No, built up and maturing. More holiness, more humility, more loving, more Christ-like, and maturing in faith and service to God. If the church operates as Christ has ordained it, we then will see souls saved. We will see the gospel go forth. But we first, it's so important. That's why the primary role of the church here today is us to build up the saints. If you guys are built up, people will get saved. I can't come in here and every Sunday just preach the same gospel message. Even though the gospel is powerful, we need, you need the maturing of your faith. And as your faith matures, you'll share the gospel. You'll live the gospel. The Holy Spirit will flow through you. And this is what he's saying. Isn't it interesting that even... The evangelist is for the building up of the saints. We saw that this week. Micah was here. I believe he has the gift of evangelism. How about you? I believe he's not a pastor, by the way. He's a gifted teacher, and he's an evangelist. But he shared with the church, and you were built up, even though you've heard the gospel before. How is that? Because when there's an anointing on a person, it will touch you. It'll flow through them to you. It's not that you say, I want to worship Micah for the rest of my life. But you'll say, I want what he has in my life. And that builds up the body. That builds up the saint. That makes you say, maybe this summer, and I challenge you, maybe somewhere between now and the end of August, you share your testimony with someone. Say, well, my testimony is not that powerful. It is with the Holy Spirit speaking. So we've seen this week in harmony. I'm a pastor. Micah has to get to evangelism. But we got to team up for the work of ministry. Amen. And we need to close with these last things, and then we wrap this up with our last point. And it dovetails off of um, the giving of leaders. So he says, let me just read this, verse 13. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man of the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting. By the way, when you know truth, you'll be able to spot error a mile away. Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, we may grow up into all things, into him who is the head. It's not me. It's not pastors. It's Christ. Verse 15, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. You have a share to do, by the way. I don't know what it is. God will help you find it. Causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Every part of your body is important and every part of the body of Christ is important. Right? You have to have at least one kidney. 
and you may be the kidney in the church somewhere. I don't know what you are, but God will give you a place. And because Christ gave himself, we have a reason to love one another. We have a reason for gratitude and a reason to serve Christ in the world around us. Because he gave the command and the commission, we have a reason for obedience and surrender and giving our lives in service. You know, you don't give your lives in service just because it's a good idea. You give it because Jesus said, this is what I've called you to do. I've given you a share in the workload to labor in the vineyard. But not just to, not in drudgery, to have a relationship with Jesus and it flows from joy. Because he gave us his spirit, we have the power and the assurance that our service can be fruitful, that it can be persevering, that we can get past tough patches, that we can get past the times where it didn't go right, that we'll get past failures. By the way, when you serve in any capacity, you will fail at times. Everyone fails. You don't live in the failure. You have other brothers and sisters. If they are serving too, they'll grab you by the hand and say, it's okay, I failed when I did that too. Let's get up together. Let's move forward together. He's given us spiritual gifts. These are gifts that we want to use because we want to glorify God with them. We want to see people strengthened. We want to be knit together in the unity of the faith till with the knowledge of the Son of God is perfected in us. And, and when the knowledge of the Son of God is in us, it's not a puffed up. It's a now we have the kind of heart Jesus has for people. When you heard Micah the other night, didn't he drip with love for the lost Mormons? And, and didn't you feel even more like I never want to ride by a bicycle the same way again? And just kind of, oh, man, they're in the neighborhood. Good gosh, i got to make sure the doors are locked. And, I, and uh, I'm, the mower's on full blast, and i got speaker headsets on and everything. Everyone's been guilty of those things. But in the body of Christ, people kind of do that too. They shut up walls from each other and know God wants to unify us for serving. George Carey said there can be no future church. There can be no future for the church unless we have a collaborative style of ministry. Your different gifts and talents are needed. God wants us to collaborate and work together. And your abilities and someone else's abilities are complementary. When the Holy Spirit's involved, it won't be friction. It will actually flow. John Armott said the greatest hindrances to evangelism in the world are those within the church. Would you agree with that? If the church is ha has disunity, no one's getting saved. But when the church becomes unified and serving together and rowing in the same direction, God will do great things. Amen? If we're walking in love, if, if the church is listening and following the God and the Spirit, if we have repentant hearts, it doesn't matter what the enemy brings our way, we can see victory. Amen? That's what a healthy church looks like. Let's close our eyes and pray.